So if you have a Bible, turn over to John 11. When I was in college, a couple of my roommates went to a local sandwich shop to pick up a nice sub sandwich. And while they were waiting in line uh, with people in front of them, they were watching as the server was preparing some of the vegetables for the buffet, and he was chopping them up with a knife and sliding them over into the small little containers where the vegetables went. And uh, it looked like a great buffet of uh, fruits and vegetables and ham and cheese and all kinds of wonderful things. But as the server was chopping up the vegetables, he slipped with the knife and he cut his own finger. Now, if you've ever cut your finger with a large knife, you know that uh, you bleed quickly and a great deal, and that's exactly what happened as they stood there watching the delicious meal they were about to eat uh, become covered in the sad results of this person's slip. And uh, they, as they stood in line, began to wonder, should we eat here or not? Perhaps we should go to another place. At first, the poor server uh, tried to wipe it away with a towel until he realized there was no wiping this away. Uh, You needed to completely reset the buffet. So they had to take all of the food, throw it away, remove the cutting boards, sanitize them, uh, do the whole thing. It was going to take about 15 or 20 minutes. At this point, my friends had pretty much lost their appetite and decided to move on to another location to eat while the server stayed behind to completely redo the buffet. Now, why do I tell you such a disgusting story first thing in the morning uh, when you've probably just woken up and it's daylight savings and everything? Here's why I tell you the story, because uh, what that young man's blood did to that buffet is what death did to God's world. Uh, if you just think back for a minute to the book of Genesis, God made a perfect world. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. They could walk with him and talk with him and with one another. There was no separation between them and God. There was no separation uh, between one another. Yet when they sinned, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that sin introduced death into the world and death spread to everybody because everybody sinned. And so now we live in a world where the shadow of death hangs over us every day, day in and day out. We're perhaps most aware of it when we go to a funeral and you sit and you listen to people say, hopefully nice words about the deceased. You sing some songs, you lay him or her in the ground, and then we go eat casserole, right? And try to move on and push it out of our view. And yet in the back of our minds, we think, That's coming to me. There's going to come a day where people will gather and they'll lay me in the ground. And so we try to push death away. Maybe we think if I just exercise enough, enough Zumba, I can push it out of my view. I eat enough broccoli, maybe. That'll push death away. The reality is you can eat vegetables until you sprout leaves, death is still coming for you. It's still coming. Uh, We try perhaps to seek immortality with what we do. We think if my career is just successful enough and I build a big enough company, or maybe I invent something that everybody needs, or I just do something great, it will last beyond my life. Maybe we seek immortality through our families, maybe through our kids. If I raise my kids well and they grow up and they go to college and they do great things, I'll live on even after I'm dead. 
and we try to push the specter of death aside, but the reality is there is no way to destroy it apart from a complete restoration of the world. We need a total reset. You can't just wipe it away. You can't just push it out of view and act like it doesn't exist. What we see throughout the Bible, after the sin of Adam and Eve, after death enters in the garden, what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is God's movement to destroy death and to restore us to him so that he can establish the world that he'd always planned. And when Jesus comes, Jesus' life is a testimony to the fact that he will conquer death. Ultimately, in his death and his resurrection, Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And so as we approach Easter, we always remember that is the great testimony to the fact that Jesus defeated death. But even throughout his earthly life, we see these moments where uh, Jesus proclaims with his words, as well as with his miracles, that death holds no power over me. And therefore it holds no power over the person who's connected to me. If you are in me, you believe in me. If you trust in me, death has no power over you. This sermon, I titled it, Death Will Not Win. I almost called it, Death is a Loser. The reason is because Jesus wins. You say, well, that's all well and good, but what does that have to do with me right now? Right now, I'm alive, and some of those whom I love are dead. What does that have to do with me? Here's how it relates to you and me, is that Jesus is life. And everybody connected to him has life not only way out in the future, but today. Because the spirit of God lives in you. And we are called, because of his victory over death, to proclaim with our work, with our words, with our family, with our friends, that Jesus has victory over death and life is found in him. That's our mission in life, to make that message known wherever God has placed you. And that's what Jesus makes apparent in John 11. So we're going to look at John 11 this morning in three acts, three movements. And through each movement, Jesus is going to demonstrate who he is and that he has power over death. And then it's going to call us to live in light of that reality, to live in light of that reality. So let's look at John chapter 11. We will start in verse one. This is the first act. We see Jesus with his disciples. Start in verse one. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. All right, let me set the stage. Jesus has moved to the other side of the Jordan River. He's on the east side of the Jordan, opposite where Jerusalem is. We found out in chapter 10, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts and in the process had gotten himself into some trouble with the Jewish leaders. He had proclaimed that he and the father were one. As a consequence of that, the Jews had picked up some stones and are ready to stone him. Jesus leaves town, goes to the other side of the Jordan, and it's there he gets this message from Mary and Martha. And the message says, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, he's sick. Now we're going to hear three times in this passage that Jesus loves this family. He loves them deeply. He interacts with Mary and Martha in particular throughout the Gospels. Uh, John mentions this is the same Mary who had anointed Jesus' feet with her hair. That actually happens in John 12, one chapter after this. In this stunning act of devotion that was controversial at the time, she broke open an expensive bottle of perfume, took her hair, bent down before Jesus, and wiped his feet to anoint him as her king. This is also the same Mary that we see who invites Jesus into their home. Mary and Martha invite Jesus into their home, and Mary is the one that sits at Jesus' feet while Martha is in the kitchen cooking and angry at Mary. That's the same Mary and Martha. He knew this family. Mary was the quiet, more contemplative one. Martha seems to be an active go-getter. It says Jesus loved them, and he loved Lazarus. And he gets word, Lazarus is sick. And the implication is, Jesus, we need you. He might die. And yet Jesus doesn't get up right away and go. He says, this isn't going to end in death, but for the glory of God. And then this striking phrase, it says, he loved them. And so, because of that, he stayed where he was for two more days. I don't know if that's ever hit you. He loved them, so he stayed where he was. Seems odd. Somebody calls me and says, your good friend is sick and might die. What's going to happen? I'm going to get in my car and drive to where he is or get on the next plane and fly to where he is. But Jesus doesn't do that. You would expect it to say, Jesus loved them. So he hopped the next donkey to Bethany, right? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's more concerned at this point with their character than their comfort. And right out of the gate, we see that Jesus is not afraid of death. It doesn't scare him. The greatest enemy you and I face is death. And if Jesus doesn't return soon, every single one of us in this room will one day lie in the ground. And we fear it. Jesus doesn't. And so he waits and he sets the stage for Mary and Martha to get to a place of hopelessness where their only hope is found in his intervention. He also pushes the disciples to that realization as well, that the only hope they have is in the intervention of Jesus. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says after a couple of days, all right, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples, I love this, they go, "Uh, Jesus, if you remember, 
just now, they say just now, it was probably actually a couple of months before, but to them, the experience was so vivid that it felt like it just happened. And they say, just now we were over there and they wanted to kill you. Why would we go back? Because they're going to kill you this time. And the implication is they will kill us as well. So please don't make us go there. And Jesus says, no, there's 12 hours in the day. You stay in the light. You're not going to stumble because you're with the light. Uh, You walk around in the dark, you're going to stumble. What's he saying? God has called me to a purpose, to defeat death. You stick with me and you're going to be fine. I am the light. Walk with me. You walk without me, you have reason to fear. And I love this misunderstanding then that happens. He says, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. The disciples demonstrate here they have no concept of Jesus' power. It doesn't even occur to them that he's talking about death. Even though sleeping was a very common euphemism for death, they can't even imagine that Jesus is saying he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Instead, they go, if he's taking a nap, he will get up. People recover from naps, Jesus. Pretty much every day it happens. If you remember, Jesus, we were in a boat with you. You fell asleep. Uh, We walked up and we said, Jesus, wake up. And you woke up. Somebody can do that for Lazarus besides you. You don't need to go back to Bethany. So Jesus becomes very direct. He's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake so that you might believe that I have power over death. You don't need to fear that they're going to kill you. And we'll see this as we walk through the passage. You cannot die if you're with Jesus. You cannot die if you're with Jesus. And I love Thomas's, Thomas's response. Thomas is kind of like the Eeyore of the group here. Okay, let's go and die with Jesus, right? <laughs> he doesn't understand at this point that Jesus conquers death. But there is something very profound about what Thomas is saying. If I'm going to die, let it be with Jesus. He doesn't understand Jesus' power over death, but he knows if I'm going to face death, this is the guy to face it with. So we'll go to Bethany with him. And if we die, we die. But I'd rather die with Jesus than live without him. And so they move forward and Jesus sets the stage to reveal his power and to get them to a place where they'll recognize We need him to overcome death. Uh, My three-year-old son's current motto in life is, I do it myself. Uh, Everything that we try to help him with, he wants to try to do on his own. So sometimes in the morning, as we're trying to get him dressed, uh, I'll get out a shirt and some clothes and begin to put the shirt over his head and he'll grab it and go, I do it myself. I go, all right, let's give it a shot. So he'll grab that shirt pull it over his head and he'll put his head where the arm ought to be. And then the arm will go over here, maybe to the other arm, maybe to where the head ought to be. And all of a sudden he's stuck and the shirt's on his face and you can see the outline of his face right here underneath the shirt. And he'll sit there kind of going like this for a minute. And then I'll hear from inside the shirt, I need help, right? (laughs) Now he's at a point where he'll recognize he needs help. That's what Jesus does. He waits just long enough that apart from him, it's without hope. He pushes the disciples just far enough that if he doesn't save them, they're all going to die 
And then he says, okay, let's go confront death. And they move forward. And that's where we get into act two with Jesus and the sisters. Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? Jesus walks into this scene which is a typical scene of mourning. Mary and Martha are in the house. They are sad. There are friends and family who have come from Jerusalem to cry with them and to grieve the loss of their brother. In wealthier families, they often had professional mourners, people who were paid to come and accompany the funeral procession and weep and wail and howl for the loss of this person. And some of them were probably in this house as well. And so Jesus walks into this setting and Martha being the active person that she is, doesn't even wait for him to get up or get to the house. She gets up, runs to him. And as soon as she sees him, she says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You're too late. And this is a reproach. Why weren't you here? Even now I know God gives you whatever you ask. Why weren't you here four days ago? And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha's answer is interesting. It's a great statement of orthodox belief. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's thinking back to Daniel chapter 12 that says, on the last day, many who are asleep will awake, some to the resurrection of life, others to disgrace and contempt. She knows her Bible and she says, I get it. He's gonna come back. But you know what? He's dead right now. And we're here. And if you'd been here, he'd be alive. I know he'll rise again, but that's hollow comfort. Jesus looks at her then and he he makes one of the most profound statements that we see in the New Testament. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die. And if he dies, he'll live. Anybody who trusts in Jesus cannot die. It's interesting, Jesus uh, comes on the fourth day. Why does he come on the fourth day after Lazarus is dead? The Jews had a tradition that on the fourth day, 
there was no more hope. One rabbi put it this way, the whole strength of the morning is not till the third day. For three days long, the soul returns to the grave, thinking that it will return into the body. When, however, it sees that the color of its face has changed, then it goes away and leaves. And in other words, every day for the first three days, the spirit comes back, looks at the body and tries to get back in and might be able to make it. Day one, day two, day three. By day three, the spirit says, all right, we're dead and leaves. Day four, it's too late. Jesus shows up one day too late. And Martha says, why weren't you here? So that you can know, Martha, that anybody who believes in me will never die. Death is eternal separation from God. Lazarus is not dead. His spirit has separated from his body and his body has experienced death, but he is alive because he's connected to Jesus. And bodily resurrection is where we will experience the fullness of life again. But Jesus says, if you know me, you live now, you live forever. You cannot die. All through the gospel of John, you see this sort of imagery pop up. John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus says, if you had asked me, I would have given you living water water that is alive. He's talking about the spirit of God that dwells in all who believe in Jesus and vitalizes us even as our bodies decay. John 7, you drink from Jesus and fountains of living water will bubble up from within. I am life. I am resurrection. Resurrection isn't an abstract theological concept about what will happen. It's what's happening now to every person who believes in me. Eternal life begins now for those who know Jesus. And it extends to eternity. And he wants Martha to turn from simply an orthodox confession of faith to a living belief in Jesus who is life and be connected to him. Uh, Some of you perhaps have smartphones, kind of like this one. Uh, You do all kinds of things on it. You might be playing Angry Birds right now, for example, right? You might be doing all kinds of things on it right at this moment. Now, last night, my guess is before you went to bed or maybe this morning when you woke up, you plugged it into a charger. It charged up. Then you unplug it and immediately it begins to do what? To die, right? We use that word when we talk about our phones, don't we? It's dying. When it runs out of battery, it is dead, right? What happens when it's dead? Tragedy. I can no longer tweet. I can no longer text. It's dead. It's useless. It's no longer alive. And I am separated from the world, right? That's death. As long as I keep it plugged in, though, it's alive. It's shiny. It's bright. has all kinds of things I can do. It's the power source that keeps it alive. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're connected to me, you are alive. You're not dead. That's why he says, if you believe in me, you will never die. You will not die. You say, well, I am going to die. My body's going to go in the grave. Yes, but you will not die. Because you're with Jesus. And the day is coming when the physical reality will match the spiritual. And that's what he shows us with Lazarus. And as he moves toward this scene of death, Jesus wants them to understand that. I am the resurrection and the life. 
That's why we don't grieve without hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. For the believer in Jesus Christ... There is no death because Jesus will one day resurrect all who believe in him. And beginning now, the spirit of God lives in you and you have life. In the last few months, I've been to two funerals for older men who were significant in my life. One was my grandfather. The other was a professor from seminary who had an impact on my life. And at both funerals, there were statements made uh, that were striking to me in expressing this concept that life does not end for the one who knows Jesus. Uh, My grandfather was buried in an Eastern Orthodox church. And although not every element of the service agreed with me theologically, there was one moment that struck me when they closed the casket and the priest stood at the casket and he said, this casket is sealed until the second coming of Jesus Christ. I thought, that's it right there. Those who die in Jesus. Casket sealed for a while, but it's going to break open. Jesus will call the dead in him to himself. At my professor's funeral, one of his kids, one of his sons stood up and said, yesterday we laid my dad's body in the ground. And then almost offhand, he said, for a little while. For a little while. Because when Jesus returns, death ends. Death will not win. He has overturned it. And now Jesus moves into the chaos of this moment and the sadness of this moment to demonstrate his power in a way they will never forget. And that's act three, Jesus and Lazarus, verses 33 to 44. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Jesus looks at all the chaos around him and it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In the original language, it has the idea actually not so much of being sad, but of being angry. Why is he angry? 
because of what death has done to his world. He sees Mary crying. He sees the mourners weeping. He sees the stone over the grave. And he knows that's not how it was meant to be. And death is the great enemy. And so he's agitated in spirit and troubled. And he sees the place. He sees these people still crying. And then Jesus bursts into tears. Jesus wept. It's the one verse everybody has memorized, right? From when they're young. Jesus wept. Why? I mean, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus in a, in a couple of minutes, right? Why does he start crying? If he knows Lazarus is about to come out. Because death still hurts. Because the pain is still very real, even though it's temporary. And Jesus is not afraid to grieve at what death is doing to the world. Those of you who have children perhaps have experienced a time when they were sick. I spoke to somebody just this morning, said their child was very sick the last week or two. Maybe they have an ear infection, the flu. Do you ever get upset about that? Maybe cry? Get angry? Why is this happening? Why do you feel that way? I mean, your kid's probably going to get better, right? Most of them don't die from an ear infection. Why do you feel that way? Because it hurts. It hurts them, and therefore it hurts you. Jesus looks at the chaos around him, and he sees that his creation is hurting, and he bursts into tears. And so then he moves forward to confront death, and he says, move away the stone. Now, Martha, who had had such a beautiful orthodox confession of faith a moment ago that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that she believes him, Martha still doesn't fully grasp what's about to happen. And she says, Jesus, just a minute. Uh, He's been dead for four days. If you remove the stone, let me just share some things with you here, Jesus. If you remove the stone, it will smell. It'll smell. He's dead. His body has begun the process of decomposition. If you open it up, it's going to be unpleasant for everybody. Now, why is Martha saying this? Partly because she wants to avoid an unpleasant situation, but partly, remember, this is her brother. She loves him. She doesn't want Jesus to open it up and subject him to further humiliation. Death is humiliating enough. Jesus, don't do that. Jesus looks back at her and says, I told you, Martha, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Trust me. So they roll the stone away. Jesus says a prayer. He says it for the benefit of those around, that they would know that Jesus is connected to the Father. And then he looks into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out here. And Lazarus gets up and he comes out. And they unbind him. And they let him go. And Jesus, with this act, gives us a foretaste of everything that's to come for those who know him. Death will not keep you in the grave. That's interesting. Uh, As far as I know, Lazarus died again. Only person I know who had to die twice. Uh, I heard a speaker just recently ask this question. What do you suppose they said at his second funeral? Well, it happened again, right? 
What do you say? Lazarus is on his way to the presence of God and all of a sudden he hears, Lazarus, come back. If I'm him, I'm going, I don't want to come back, right? But he comes back to demonstrate the glory of God, that death will one day be overturned. And this is just a taste. I like to think that at Lazarus' second funeral, they actually said something like this. Remember what happened before? He died before. Jesus raised him again. Now he's dead again, but not for long. Jesus will raise him up again. He's not going to stay there forever. And we know that now. What Jesus can do once, he'll do again. For all time, for eternity. That's the hope of resurrection. As we move toward Easter, we celebrate that hope. And for the next several weeks, Brian's going to be taking us through a series on the subject of Easter. But every Sunday, we worship on Sunday, incidentally, because Jesus was raised on Sunday. Every Sunday, we remember. He did it. He defeated death. It has no power. He completely, one day, will restore things to the way they are meant to be. On Easter, I always love to read, of course, the resurrection narratives, but I also like to read from the book of Revelation. I like to go ahead and kind of skip to the end. I don't know if you ever do that with novels. You go, uh, this is stressing me out. I'm just going to read the end and then I can come back and just chill and enjoy the rest of the book, right? So you go read the end and then you come back and you read the book. That's what I love to do on Easter. So I go to Revelation chapter 21 to see what Jesus promises for those who know him. And how it's all going to pan out. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new, all things new, a complete reset a complete restoration of the way things were meant to be. That's what Jesus is showing us as he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, now, if you know me, living water is inside of you. The Spirit of God lives in you. And so you're called to proclaim this message with your words, with your life, that Jesus is alive. And he offers eternal life to all who will believe in him. So a couple of applications as we close. First of all, we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. Yes, we grieve. We grieve death. We grieve sin. We grieve pain. It's appropriate in the midst of a sinful and broken world to grieve, to cry as Jesus did. And yet we grieve with hope. Knowing that death will not win because Jesus has overcome it. And all who are in him are alive. 
And so we comfort others with the promise of resurrection. We comfort others with the promise that in Jesus Christ, life never ends. And so you and I, with our lives, as we work, as we interact with our families, with our neighbors, with our friends, we're called to proclaim that message. When I work, I work with excellence so that those around will see the excellence of a God who made me and will one day restore perfection to his earth. As I raise my kids, I hope to raise children who will go into the world and proclaim this message until the day Jesus returns. And so my goal is not primarily to help them be successful in worldly terms, but to help them depend, as God called Mary and Martha and Lazarus and you and me, to help them depend upon Jesus as their only hope and proclaim that hope to the world. In everything we do, that's our call, to spread this message of good news, that Jesus has defeated death. Death won't win. He wipes the slate clean. He'll start over. And if you know Jesus, if you've believed that he died and rose again, life for you begins now. And eternal life starts in this moment and it begins, it extends into eternity forever and ever and ever. You cannot die if you're connected to Jesus. And we have the privilege and the honor of being connected to the source of life and the responsibility of connecting others. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. In it is power. In it is truth about who you are and all that you have done. Father, we are in awe of what Jesus did. He defeated death and we can't. And so we rely on his resurrection to provide us life. Thank you. I pray now that through the power of your spirit, you would fill us with your living water and allow us to be faithful representatives of the message of Jesus Christ until the day you return or call us to be with you. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week.